ladies and gentlemen. It is that time once again. We are broadcasting almost live from deep beneath an old Y2K bunker. It's Tavern Voices. I'm your host, Kevin King, and with me, as always, is our other host and my co-president of the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez fan club, Tyler Crawley. How's it going, my friend? It's good. It's good. Uh, New year. Same old stuff. So nothing's really changed. I'm glad we're under a Y2K. But in fact, we bring so much stuff back. I'm actually surprised. You know, all this Clinton talk and and uh, all this sort of nostalgia for the 90s. I'm actually surprised we haven't brought Y2K back. We should think about it. Just wait. I mean, why not at this point? Because <laughs> we're pretty much living in a time loop. This probably goes to that whole Elon Musk philosophy that we're just living in a, a digital universe. Hologram, yeah. So that what happened is they just accidentally got caught in a loop and we we repeated back into the 90s. Well, you got to wonder, remember everyone was worried about like the 2000. You got to wonder if 2020, if the computer will get confused thinking that the beginning and, and the ending of the date are the same and it's going to cause havoc as well. So maybe we can like start a company that deals to help computers deal with 2020, the changing date there and just do nothing, but just bill a bunch of co- corporate clients that were doing something like that. I think it's a winning strategy. That, that actually sounds like a scam, Tyler, to be honest. <laughs> but, um, but you know what? If we, make, our- <laughs> if we make enough money, if we make enough money, we could make that this this brand new 70% marginal tax rate bracket. And so we will be good to go. Uh, that, that, that makes me – I feel like you're going somewhere with that, Tyler. <laughs> well, see, normally, normally I try and avoid talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a.k.a. OAC – but her comments on Sunday night during 60 Minutes, well, we got to discuss them. Mostly because people like Paul Krugman and supposedly legitimate people, I don't know how legitimate Krugman is anymore, uh, are backing up what she is saying and other Democrats are backing it up. So we got to talk about it. So she was on 60 Minutes uh, being interviewed by Anderson Cooper. And she started off by saying that Trump is definitely a racist. Then she said that the top marginal tax rate should be raised to 70 percent to pay for our transition as a company as we move to 100% renewables. So that means our country will be run entirely by windmills and solar panels. And then she said people tend to get hung up on facts instead of focusing on who is morally right in the argument. So even if you're wrong, you can still be right. Kevin, AOC is proposing some radical ideas. Who should be more worried about this? The GOP? Or Democrats? Well, I mean, that that's a tough one. I Well, I don't think the GOP has to be worried about it because um, they're basically at this point just promoting the same ideas, but with slightly smaller numbers um, with, with the big government policies that we've seen over the last, I mean, really 20 years at this point. But, um, but I think Democrats really have to be worried, right? Because... Now they're going to have to either admonish her and and that part of their base, or they're going to have to embrace it and then also back up the same policies she's bringing up. And so I think it's going to be really tough for their party. Is it going to be the uh, AOC uh, Bernie Sanders faction that's going to come out strong? Or is it going to be the, I don't know, Joe Webb, almost Hillary Clinton branch? I mean, I don't think even Joe Biden is is in that same camp as the the Sanders AOC category. So I think they need to be worried about that and figure out what they're going to do with the crazies, because we had plenty of crazies in the Tea Party era that popped up and they all kind of filtered out after the um, 
Well, uh, M- Michelle Bachman and the, uh, you know, when she was telling about how, um, you know, Jesus was telling her uh, what policies should be, should be going back and forth. You're going to so, get a lot of hate mail for this one. <laughs> <laughs> no one remembers that, but you and I really, but what I'll tell you, the, here's the thing is that, you know, I, I'm worried about the GOP because the GOP does seem to have a little bit of an obsession with her. Um, and a lot of it's the media, um, you know, they proper up and then of course conservative media responds, but I'll tell you what I'm worried about is that there are a lot of people who are like, ah, she's so crazy. These ideas are crazy. Let's hope that she gets propped up because that will lead to us winning all these elections. And the Democrats thought the same thing about Donald Trump. They said, if Donald Trump gets the nomination, Hillary Clinton is going to walk away with the election and then boom, 2016 happened. And so I'm worried the Democrat or Republicans are going to fall into that same trap because despite all of her crazy ideas, she is likable. She's charismatic. She's good on social media. She has a lot of things. And let's face it, the presidential election. Now, I think she's like seven or eight years away from it. But the presidential election is a popularity contest. It's not about ideas. It's not about policies. It's about popularity. And it worries me that she is somewhat popular and people like her. And I think they'll look past her crazy ideas. And that worries yeah, me for the GOP. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. And and let me bring up two points on that. First of all, I think you are absolutely right that um, that the media keeps propping her up. It's it's you know every single year they talk about how there is backlash at the Starbucks Holiday Cup because yeah. somehow Christians are upset at Starbucks for it not being a Christmas cup or something, and yet. They can never point to one person who's actually been upset, but it becomes a perennial media story, kind of like the war on Christmas has become. And there are individual examples sometimes of that, but as a whole, it's not really what the media will make it out to be. And I think that's the thing with AOC, as we have seen, is she does something and they say, all of these people are outraged at her, but yet they can't actually point to anyone who even noticed what she had done. So that fake outrage, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, isn't something that I think will get a lot of ground with the average person. And we saw that the average person really made a big difference in the Trump election. The person that is generally not counted in polls, who is generally not the person who gets involved in day-to-day politics or even pays attention to things like AOC posting a video uh, of her dancing at her congressional office. So I, I don't think that that kind of stuff plays long term, but I do think you're absolutely right that the GOP has to be careful when picking fights or dismissing her because she very much is likable. It very much plays into the these stupid kids don't matter narrative, which I think both parties are very guilty of when you get younger people involved. And so you have the youngest woman elected to Congress and let let her dig her own you know grave on this one because – her policies are absurd. She does not understand common economic principles. Every time she goes to quote a fact, she's widely off. I mean, when you have Anderson Cooper calling you out on your inability to state facts, that should say a lot about where you're sitting. And so they need to let her do her own thing and not draw any more attention to it than necessary. And I think it's also uh, the the other concerning thing, and this is why I'm concerned about it, is that people now identify you based on who your enemies are. One of the reasons that Trump did so well, I think, in the GOP primary 
was that the GOP E, as it's called, or the establishment GOP, hated Donald Trump. And that actually made people like Trump, like the the average voter who who thinks that the GOP E in some cases is worse than Democrats. The people that hated Paul Ryan and they don't like Mitt Romney and everyone else, they loved the fact that Trump was hated by the establishment. And so if the same thing happens to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, same thing happens to her and the, you know, Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's and the Steny Hoyer's and all them start openly being hostile to her and voters start realizing that they don't. Because some people some people think in the Democrats, they look at Nancy Pelosi the same way some Republicans looked at Paul Ryan. They think that she's too moderate. She does too, 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 too many things that are in the middle of the road. Uh, and so once that happens, and then of course the media and, you know, Democrats also, or Republicans also love the fact that Hillary hated Donald Trump and, and the media. And so all of these things can create this perfect storm where you have the perfect enemies. And so even if you're not perfect, your enemies are perfect and that's what will lead you to victory. And that's what happened to Trump and it could happen to AOC. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. And we are living in an era of perfect enemies. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And, you know, so Tyler, we have not done this podcast in a couple of weeks because we did it right before Christmas. Uh, so we had Christmas and then the new year, we kind of took that off. And I think you got to relax and play golf. I got sick whatever a little bit too. Things <laughs> yeah. A little badminton. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little badminton in your, uh, your sweater tied around your neck. <laughs> the V-neck with the, uh, the red stripe. So that's how you got to do it. Okay. Yeah. See, I've, I've got to take notes because all I have are blue jeans, which you <laughs> those are not allowed. Those are not allowed at the country club. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know anything about that. But since our last podcast, we have had a government shutdown, and it's amazing because it seems like forever since we podcasted, and it seems like forever since the government has shut down. In fact, the government shutdown is actually seventeen days strong and counting at this point. During that time, the blame has been bounced between Trump and the incoming Democratic House, maybe a little blame to the Republican House prior to the uh, to the new swearing in. But the linchpin seems to be a five point seven billion dollar border wall. And uh, I think this is the same border wall that Mexico is going to pay for. But maybe we're financing it for them through China or something. I'm not sure. But most national headlines have centered around overflowing trash cans. It's it's just insane out there right now with all of the trash in these national parks with the government shutdown. Now they are going one by one to each of the 380,000 furloughed employees doing these profile stories on a day in the life of a of a government employee who has been affected by the shutdown. There's an additional 420,000 employees that are still working, but without pay. So at this rate, all of these profile pieces should last us several decades through the government shutdown. Tyler, there's a lot of back and forth on all sides of these issues, but here is my question to you. At any point, has anyone stopped to ask how we have a government with 800,000 employees that we can't even afford when we're only discussing 7% of the budget. It's even less than, well, I mean, I guess total at 7%, but. That's the discretionary part. That's the only yeah. part that's even up yeah. for discussion. No, yeah. yeah I, right. It's a much smaller portion that's even being discussed, but yeah. continue. The 5 billion, I think, is uh, 0.125% of the budget, which is really funny. It's why the, you know, this, this, this whole thing is happening over such a small amount of money, but because it's a, a symbolic win for both 
both sides. They look at it as it's it's it sort of symbols what's going to be happening over the next two years. That's why they both dug in so much. But yeah, I mean, it 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 is really amazing um, the fact that you look at our budget. And the fact that $5 billion is such a small amount is really absolutely just astonishing um, because the majority of the budget is automatic spending, entitlement programs, uh, debt, all of these things. And the fact that I think we have a $4 trillion budget, a trillion dollar shortfall. And yeah, the numbers are insane when you, you when you try to talk about it. I mean, you almost kind of lose just any sense of reality talking about numbers this big because – you know, five billion dollars. Everyone's like, "Oh, it's no big deal." But I mean, any anyone—if you gave them five billion dollars, generations could live off that money. I mean, multiple generations could live off that money. That's uh, an awful lot of avocado toast. Yeah, that's a lot of avocado toast. <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio Cortez could have a lot of <laughs> avocado toast. It's yeah, it, it just and and so that's what's so amazing is you're having this debate, and the more we have this debate, but it also it goes to show how ingrained government is in all of our lives. What we're seeing happen, um, slowly this is going to happen, is more and more people are going to be affected by the shutdown. Every shutdown that we've had sort of in modern history has been somewhat short. But what's going to start happening is that people who have, think they have no affiliation whatsoever with the government are going to start getting affected. You know, Here in southeastern North Carolina, there's been talk about Gen X water testing could be delayed because of the EPA and the money that they have available. Uh, people who are recovering from Hurricane Florence, how they're getting their money, that could be impacted. Tax returns uh, all across the country are going to be impacted. And so slowly, people are going to start realizing exactly how ingrained government is in everyone's life. Even people that think they have absolutely zero connection are like, yeah, I actually had a guy calling my show last week. And he was like an oyster farmer. He got decimated by Hurricane Florence. And he said he supported the shutdown, but he his payment, his, you know, his farm got pretty much you know, leveled and he was getting a, a, a big check. Uh, so he didn't go to business from Florence. Like I guess I'm not sure some kind of government program to help him out. He's not going to get that check now. And so how is that going to impact him? And he basically was calling in and saying, listen, I support the shutdown. I support immigration. Um, you know, these, these restrictions on illegal immigration, but I, I don't know how long I can support it if it leads to me having to shut down my business or going bankrupt or something along those lines. And that's, what's really going to be amazing about this shutdown is that the, it doesn't seem like there's, they're at an impasse. I mean, they, they, they have made zero ground and no one looks like they're willing to budge an inch. And so this thing could be going on for a while and it's really going to be who cracks first based on the pressure as more and more people are impacted by it. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to throw out a couple of numbers here because I think um, unlike AOC, I do think facts are important. And here's some here's some quick numbers for you. We have a four point four trillion dollar. I use the term budget loosely because let's face it, no one is actually budgeting for our country. But out of that four point four trillion, three point one is mandatory spending that has to go certain places. That's an astronomical number. I mean, that's entitlement, military, you know, education, so on and so forth. Then you have a trillion that is unimpacted discretionary spending. So all of these other programs that we keep going, um, which are technically discretionary spending, but the employees are not impacted by the shutdown. Then there's 300 billion. So you're talking about a small piece of a giant pie that is being affected by the shutdown and nobody's taking a look and saying, is this a little 
out of control? Is this a little much? And the other thing, I know I'm running short on time on this particular point, so I'll, I'll get to the point on it. But I did mention that the overflowing trash cans has been the uh, the main article photo on about every piece that's that's talked about the government shutdown. And it really drives me insane because what we have now is an entire society that's based around this giant government that will shut down and 800,000 employees are affected by just a 7% budget. And yet you've got all of these people who go to national parks. They walk down the street by the White House. They go through, you know, outside the Smithsonian or wherever, and they overflow trash cans. They're not even decent enough human beings to carry their trash past a full trash can. They just throw it on top or on the ground, say somebody else will handle it. And and that to me is just a, a problem with society that I don't know how you fix that. Like that goes far beyond whether or not we should fund government. I mean, once it's funded, basically these people are babysitters for an irresponsible population who throw trash on the ground at national parks. That's that's where we've gotten to. It is weird. It's I mean, it's it's so weird. Like the overflowing trash can. If, you, if the trash can's full, just take another trash can. <laughs> like it's not like those are the only trash cans in DC. I mean, I know I live there. There's plenty of trash cans walk into the a whole business place, and the throw. whole place is a trash can. Well, it's a swamp. It's a swamp, not a oh, trash right, can. Right, right, a swamp. It's a You're swamp. Right. Uh, but here's one thing I wanted to, I wanted to mention. Um, so I actually had somebody else calling the show because I don't want to take credit for this. And it mentioned one of the ways that we can solve this budget crisis was, you know, you mentioned the tea party earlier. What was one of the big accomplishments of the tea party? They got rid of earmarks. And that was this huge, big thing. Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that since we got rid of earmarks, we have not had one budget go forward. And one of the reasons is that no one wants to cut anything because they're worried that they're going to be the ones that get cut. And so I was having a conversation with this caller and we came to this conclusion is that earmarks for the most part are like $10 billion. So what if we're able to give everyone earmarks again so they can earmark certain projects for their district and help them get elected and da, 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 da. But in exchange, they have to cut $100 billion out of the budget. And they can find ways to cut it. And then if you know if they're cutting a program, then they can get it earmarked to maybe make up for the cuts that are going to be happening. And so we could end up saving net $90 billion um, by bringing earmarks back as a way to help these congressmen who are going to have to face these big cuts in order to get us back to a level playing field. But that could be actually one of the solutions. And I thought that's actually a good idea. And it's like crazy to think that ba- basically giving congressmen bribes in order to sort of soften the blow for a lot of things that we're going to have to cut. That's why no one wants to cut anything in the budget because they're worried it's going to hit their district. So if you can find a way that they can earmark things for their district, they might be more open to cutting and these big drastic cuts that we're going to need. That's absolutely fantastic. It's terrifying that that's where we are. It's like, all right, we're going to have to bribe congressmen in order to get these things done. Um, all right. Um, I do you know, speaking of, hold on. I was actually going to say this guy called me last week on the show. That that was gonna that was gonna be my transition, Kevin. I totally bungled my transition, so I apologize. Well, that's for that. the first time that's happened. So. I know. I was going to be like, well, speaking of last week, all right. Last week, the Supreme Court said they were going to take up the issue of gerrymandering in two states, North Carolina, woohoo, and Maryland. As we all know, North Carolina gerrymandered by Republicans, Maryland uh, gerrymandered by Democrats. The court has never ruled on partisan gerrymandering. And despite Democrat glee, Anthony Kennedy, who has always seemed open to the idea of ruling against partisan gerrymandering, if they could find some standard to prove that it's you know created a problem, they're never able to do that. 
But if they were able to do that, uh, he looked seemed open to it. Uh, he has been replaced by conservative jurist Brett Kavanaugh, who is known for supporting judicial restraint. However, Democrats still remain somewhat optimistic. Kevin, I saw a tweet from a lady today uh, in response to an article about Tom Tillis. She said that Tom Tillis was unlikely to win in 2020 and then said, I quote, especially if the court ordered gerrymandering redistricting goes through. Kevin, what percentage of people would you say actually know what gerrymandering is? Are we talking about the general population? Yes. Oh, I, I'm thinking one percenters. Okay. Definitely. Okay. But even even yeah. those that are like kind of involved, like this lady who clearly has no idea what gerrymandering is. Um, so even Don't, just Democrats, what percentage of Democrats think or know what Demo- or gerrymandering is? I'm going to say under 1%. Don't you remember back when uh, this has been a couple of months now, but when gerrymandering was really hot in the headlines and there were like blue check verified Twitter accounts talking about statewide gerrymandering for like Lindsey Graham, I think was the example they used that Lindsey Graham had gerrymandered his seat and it's mind boggling (laughs) how, I mean, this is what really concerns me because at this point you're talking about high levels of intelligence, right? These are NPR listeners, college educated, professional type people who don't have a basic understanding of of things like government. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Well, I, I, I've, I've told that story before, I think, uh, where before I got on the radio, I was working at Enterprise Rent-A-Car and we had to pick people up and drive them places. You know, drop the car off. I drive them to wherever I had to take them. And we get in the car and usually we would drive them in the car that the person was dropping off. And I get in the car and the guy has NPR on and I'm driving him to the place and uh, it was May. And in May... In an election year in North Carolina, that's when we have our primaries. And we're at a stoplight, and the guy's looking around, and he goes, what are all these signs doing out? I thought the election was in November. And I was like, oh, it's a primary. And I said, what is NPR talking about? <laughs> like, how did you not know that there was a primary? Like, I mean, are you kidding me? We're, we, were, we were like three weeks away from the primary, and this guy who's listening to NPR had no idea. And so I don't know if that's NPR's fault. I don't know if it's this guy's fault. But yeah, it is amazing how many people hear something. And I think gerrymandering is one of those terms. I mean, so I love this lady's comment because she said, especially if the court ordered gerrymandering redistricting goes through. I don't know if she thinks that the court's going to order gerrymandering and it's a good thing. Um, If she's a, I don't think she has any idea what it is. She just knows that gerrymandering and redistricting are somewhat related and it's going to help Democrats win. And so, man, I hope the Supreme Court does what it's going to do. But she doesn't know anything about it because the, the court ordering the court would actually rule against gerrymandering. It would stop it. It wouldn't force it. So I don't, she has no idea what gerrymandering. <laughs> she just knows that whatever the Supreme Court does and the Democrats all cheer, she's going to cheer too. But yeah, no, it's, that, it's, she doesn't know anything else. It's buzzwords. It's Republicans. It's education. It, I mean, we, we've seen that in the Moral Monday protest at yeah. the General Assembly, right? It's just let's get up here and protest something, say a bunch of words, and you rile up. I mean, what, what was wasn't it South Park where they rabble, rabble, rabble? Is all they said. <laughs> I think that's the point we're at. And I do have a quick story that your 
enterprise rent-a-car story reminded me of, and so I have to share because you really can't make this up. I was working part-time in a hotel uh, a couple years ago, and um, I had been standing at the front desk, and the guy there, he he is a self-ascribed, you know, political kind of person. And he's a big, strong Democrat in this particular case. And so him and I would always talk back and forth about different things. And, um, you know, he was very anti-Trump and anti-anything Republican. He was pro-Hillary. And um, he's talking about how this particular night we were talking about how people aren't engaged. And he was talking about how it was so awful that people weren't engaged in the political process. They didn't know who their elected officials were. They just really weren't up to speed on the current issues. And that was a major problem. So I turned to my side as a guest starts walking through the sliding doors. I instantly recognize the guest and they come walking up to the desk. So I back away so that he can check them in. The guest walks up, stands at the counter and the gentleman behind the counter says, "Uh, so what name is the reservation under? He had no idea who this person was. The person then responds, my name is Richard Burr. <laughs> Needless to say, it was mildly ironic that during a discussion about being politically involved, he had no idea one of his two uh, you know, senators work. So I just wanted to share that with you. Uh, well, and, and real quick here, um, I did also want to point out that um, my favorite author, writer from national review kevin williamson one time wrote a thing about uh some kid on occupy wall street going crazy and was talking about derivatives and how they brought down the financial system in 2008 and we got to get rid of them and they're the you know the, the most horrible thing ever and this kid this kid was going on and on for like five minutes and so kevin finally asked him what's a derivative <laughs> he had no idea <laughs> he had no idea what it was <laughs> he just knew that other people had talked about how bad they were and so we got to get rid of them, but he didn't know what it was. And it's like, it, it's funny because you're right. I mean, that's, that's what your story was, was about is that some of the people who act like they're in the know and criticize others for not knowing are also, uh, what's that called? Is that called the Dunning Kruger effect? Is, would that be an example of that? Where the people uh, who are like the dumbest think they're like the most confident in what they're saying in reality, they don't know anything. I think that might be right, but yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was a psychological. I, I was reading a Washington Post article about today, and, and I still don't get it, but that might apply. So that's okay. I mean, this is probably an example of that where you are confidently <laughs> talking about something. I, exactly, that's no true. About. <laughs> that's like a meme and waiting to happen. Well, since since we have been talking about education, I think this leads perfectly into our last topic. And in case you had missed this, Tyler, the News and Observer had an article today that was diving into the enrollment problems in Durham public schools. It appears that the number of enrolled students is down by about a thousand over the past four years. Meanwhile, charter school enrollment has gone up by more than 1,700 students in the same period of time. Read between the lines and Republicans and charter schools are destroying public education. Other counties here in the Triangle are seeing similar trends. They talked about Wake, Johnston, um, Chatham, Orange counties, all, all seeing very similar results. So Durham County School Board member Natalie Beyer had this to say in the article, quote, families and students need to understand that individual choices impact the ability to serve all students with excellence and equity. So, Tyler, my question to you is this. Should we continue to allow students to seek better education or should we just force students to stay 
in our failing public education system. Yeah, you got to love. There's something I love more than the uh, divide among the Democrats where you have the bourgeoisie liberals who live in the suburbs who are terrified about the lack of diversity in schools, even though they live in neighborhoods where they're responsible for the lack of diversity. It's, you know, this whole idea of like neighborhood schools and we go neighborhood schools are racist. And it's like, why? Well, because then people won't go to school with uh, people that look different than them and act. Well, so it's what you're saying is that we're all racist because everyone's living in neighborhoods with everyone that's like carbon copies of themselves. And right. so what if you're you really saying is that we're racist. <laughs> what you're, when you say neighborhood schools are racist, you're saying that we're racist. But what's funny about that is that the people who always are advocating for it are the ones who have the option. You know, they have the disposable income to send their kid to a private school or they have a charter school or whatever it is that's available to them. And then they criticize the charter school saying it hurts the public schools. But if you talk to other Democrat voters, those who are in urban areas who don't have any money and all they have is a crappy public school that has a the dropout rate gets worse every year, a charter school pops up they're clamoring for it. They're trying, they're going, trying to get their kid in They're They're using the lottery system, whatever they can do to get their child in that school. And then you have these like liberals, like I said, who send their kids to private schools telling them that, no, you're wrong. That's bad that you want to send your kid to a charter school. And I'm always wondering when it's going to come to a head because it, the, 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 they're so different on this idea that eventually it's, it's, it's just, they're not, it's not compatible. You're, you're going to see some people, um, having to make it, the Democrat party is going to make a decision. Are they, are they against charter schools? Or are they for it? And that's going to be a problem. Yeah. I mean, the whole point is that obviously there's a problem when you talk to everyone, they will say there is a problem in public education. Some will say it's a lack of funding. Some will say it's a lack of, you know, teacher pay or go on down the list of not enough textbooks, what have you, but people on both sides of the aisle, especially, well, I say people, but generally people with kids, not necessarily those involved directly in teaching or the administration or any of the inner workings of the education system, but the people impacted by the education system see that there are problems. Yet no one ever seems to like volunteer solutions. Whenever someone puts up a solution like charter schools, it gets attacked. Like why is giving another option a bad thing, especially when charter schools run on a fraction of the budget that a public school does. They have to come up with everything else themselves. They have um, they have to compete with a well-funded public education system to pay their teachers. Um, th- there's a lot that goes into a public, I mean, to a charter school. I mean, they've either got to come up with the capital themselves to build a school or use an existing facility. Um, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into it. And you're right, private schools as well is a factor. And so instead of saying we have a problem with public schools, what are we going to do to fix it? And, and how can we do that from the inside out? It's just let's attack those who are doing it better than we are. Well, and it should also be noted, and this is something that drives me crazy, is that if you actually crunch the numbers, uh, and this is true in North Carolina. I'm not sure about other states. I haven't looked at them. But when someone goes to a charter school, uh, they, as you mentioned, it's a fraction of the spending. So I think we spend, what, nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000 per pupil in North Carolina. Charter schools get like seven or eight. Uh, if you go to a private school and you take advantage of the uh, vouchers, which once again, only low income students can take advantage of, you're talking like five or six. And so just 
using the, those numbers, I mean, it's, it's very clear to anyone that understands basic math. Every time a student leaves to go to either a charter school or a private school, the per people spending of the public school system goes up. And it's funny that Democrats uh, complain about the per people spending and the money leaving the public school system when in reality, per people spending goes up as these other options become available. And then if you have people who don't take advantage of the voucher system, the rich who just send their kids to private school, they keep all the money. (laughs) So, and yet they still denounce and criticize. And it's like, if you really want per people spending to go up, we should build more charter schools and more private schools. Oh, you're absolutely right. But the overarching issue that I think, and I saw this recently online with a debate that was going on regarding um, Social Security, and someone was making the point of why why are we forced into Social Security that's failing, that doesn't see the returns? Um, Maybe you saw it. There was a, a tweet that sparked it where some economist had done the math on what he was going to pay into Social Security versus what he was going to get yeah. out. Do you remember seeing that? I did. I did. It's making its rounds. And I saw some people debating it. And the person on there um, was basically saying, well, if you let people opt out who can manage their money better, then the whole system does worse. And I think that's the whole thing that we get at with the public education system is if you keep funneling off the smarter students or the um, more financially stable students into other alternatives, then a failing system gets worse. So their solution is to penalize those who would be better off in order to not harm those who are going to be bad off anyway, any worse. And it's a very strange moral situation to be in to say that we can't help everyone. To say we would rather harm some to potentially help others than to say let's find solutions that help everyone. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's they definitely want to hurt the people that they think are advantaged and uh, are prosperous. And so, you know, we got to you got to put your you know boot, I guess, on their neck and try and help the other group. And in reality, just let let the people decide. I mean, we as we've said many a times here on this show is the market is a much better decider of what the people want than central planning. It doesn't work. It's been tried in various stages and various forms, I should say, of government, whether it's education, whether it's, you know, food programs, whether it's housing programs, whatever. And it never works. It never works. And so there's no better example of democracy in action than our school system where there's choices out there for people. Uh, and the unfortunate the, rea- and the unfortunate thing is, is if you remove these options, the only choices that exist are for the very rich. Um, when in reality, these programs that are being implemented, charter schools and, and voucher programs help everybody and create a level playing field for everyone to have a choice. And I, let's face it, the Democrats always say they're pro-choice, not when it comes to education, obviously. Yeah, you're 100 percent right on that one as well. That makes twice tonight wow. that you have been 100 percent right. That's a good start to 2019, if I do say so myself. You're you're batting a thousand. You're headed to the uh, <laughs> you're headed to the Super Bowl at this the point. Problem, problem is, you know what that means, though. It's all downhill from here. Yeah, it's just the law of averages. It's like it's you not make your first, better. you know, foul shot um, in a game. You're at a you know 100 percent. And if you miss one, it's now you're. I mean, so it's it can only go down. It's impossible to keep 100. percent So I'm maybe I should just announce my retirement right now. Well, it's been fun having you. It's uh, <laughs> it is closing time. Do you have anything else to add to the discussion? No, no. I think I'm I think I'm I'm all talked out for the day. 
Yeah, fair enough. I'm I'm pretty talked out myself. So how about we uh we keep the streak alive for 2019? We're we're a thousand percent so far, <laughs> and uh, let's let's do it again next week. All right, man. I will be here. Sounds good. See ya. <laughs>